Welcome to the last post, Ken Doan, and um, we, uh, we, we're we privileged to be speaking with you. How are you this morning in the, in the light of everything that's going on? Oh, look, it's, uh, it's a bit unusual, but, you know, we can't complain. I'm in the studio painting, and, uh, you know, we've got a lovely garden. I went for a swim this morning, so um, I'm sure we'll get through it, and there's a hell of a lot more people worse off than me. Mm, indeed, Ken, and uh, it, uh, without flying the flag or, or saluting or singing the anthem, it reminds us how lucky we are to be in Australia, really. Look, every time I look out my window, um, I give thanks to uh, the fact that uh, the kind of lifestyle that most Australians have is just fantastic. Mm, indeed, and uh, you've... Um, You've used Sydney and uh, Australia as a, a theme for many years, but w- when did this first come to you? I mean, apparently you left school, pull me up if I'm wrong, but you left school at an early age to attend the National Arts School. Uh, you must have known then, obviously, from an early age, this calling. Well, look, I'm very grateful for my parents allowing me to leave school. I passed what was then the intermediate certificate, I suppose, as year 10 now. Mm. I went to Mossman High School. They didn't teach art to boys, which was a bit of a disappointment. Now they have a very good reputation for uh, teaching art. But in those days, it didn't. Anyway, I passed the intermediate, and because uh, my, my dad played golf with a bloke who suggested that I should go to um, art classes on a Saturday morning up in Gore Hill where the ABC used to be. Mm. And so I did that and the bloke who ran that said, oh look, you should go to East Sydney Tech, which is now the National Art School. So fortunately, with my with my parents' blessings, I was able to uh, to leave school and, uh, and go to art school. I think I was the youngest person that uh, ever went to East Sydney Tech at 14 and a half, but it was... Uh, it was a wonderful experience. It must have been, Ken, and uh, particularly given what you've just told the rest of Australia about you being the youngest at the art school, um, were, ha- was that uncomfortable or was it just an exciting time? No, it wasn't uncomfortable. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, uh, everybody's a bit older than me. I called the teacher Mr or Mrs mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, I was a pretty... It, it was 1954. Four, I think, or 1955. So it was a fairly gentle time in Australia. There wasn't too much, uh, too much aggression from the kids, and um, you know, you just sort of get on with it. And uh, to to have a school where every day I was studying drawing or colour or composition or stuff like that was mm. for me fantastic. Mm. And it's interesting that you note the time there being 1955, and of course. Uh, the 50s is often looked upon as a, a sleepy period in Australia's history, but indeed there was evolving art. There was. There was a lot of good things going on. But, uh, uh, you know, it, there were a couple of uh, kids or older blokes than me that had been in Korea that had, that had come back and were studying art. In the end, I left before the course finished because I was given the opportunity to uh, get out and work and a mm. couple of very good jobs. And uh, uh, then I sort of started my own studio and uh, I, I was doing that until I was I was 40. Well, until I was 35, I was in the advertising business. I was an art director. I was very good at it. Mm. Uh, worked in London and Tokyo and New York, but the call of Australia is very strong, so we came back to Australia. 
Uh, I worked then, I took over Bryce Courtney's job. I worked for a big advertising agency. And then mm -hmm. one holiday, we were in, uh, we're in the Isle of Pines. Uh, Sunday night, I was sitting on the beach. I was talking to Peter Brock, you know, the late yes. Peter Brock, the racing car driver. And yes. he was talking to me about how, how absolutely passionate he was about racing car driving. And I realized I wasn't passionate about what I was doing. And so, uh, I, we flew back to Sydney. I walked into the chairman's office and I resigned. I was 35 and you know, we had one child. We had a big mortgage, so I then had to work out how I could how I could support us all. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was 40 before I was 40 before I had my first exhibition. So no one knew anything about me before then. But you know, I guess I've been fairly um, <laughs> yes. active since that time. Yes, indeed. And uh, if we go back to that time, uh, Ken, where you left Australia for um, for overseas, those places you mentioned, was that a, an eye-opener for you? How did it feel to be overseas plying your trade? Well, funny enough, the first place that I went uh, was Japan with a mate of mine. I was, uh, I think I was 21. And Japan, it wasn't that long since the war finished, so mm. there weren't too many tourists in Japan. There was no... Uh, no English signs anywhere. Uh, it was an amazing experience uh, to go there, and that, I guess, gave me the feeling of travelling. So when I came back to Australia, even though my parents were English and always the concept was of England being home, I I went to America. I thought that um, I would go a different way, so I went to uh, Mexico and then I travelled up to San Francisco where I got some freelance work and then I took a bus across America. You could do it in those days, 99 days for $99. I mean, obviously it didn't take that length of time, but mm. it showed me a couple of things, how beautiful America was all the way across, but also how insular the middle part of America was, very little understanding of you know, certainly where Australia was or things like that. Mm. And then I was hired in New York by a big advertising agency, which again, was, look, it's a very exciting thing to do. You know, you're a young guy, the opportunities mm. arrive, and so you respond to them. And I couldn't get a green card in those days to stay in New York, so they asked whether I'd go to the London office, which I did. And uh, then uh, I was in the London office for five years. I had a wonderful, it was a very optimistic time for England. Mm. You know, they'd won the won the uh, World Cup and That's right. yep, yep. we still had relatives there and we, we Judy and I, we, uh, my, my, my big girlfriend came across, we were married, we were married in a little church in Cranford which is in the middle of England and where my dad used to go during the war and we had, uh, we, we still had relatives there so. How beautiful. It was, it was lovely. Yeah, a very, very artistic Lovely, peaceful, tranquil um, setting, I imagine, too, particularly yeah, after the It's a lovely little town, Cranford. It's um, two pubs, uh, a couple of streets, thatched houses, um, a little stream going through. We were married in a very old Norman church, and as I say, my dad used to go there during the war to the pub, which is called the Woolpack, and they've got a, a game that they play there. It's a kind of game of skittles, which is on a raised wooden platform about a meter square with nine wooden pegs and you 
you throw a round wooden disc like the shape of a big cheese, I suppose, to knock these skittles down. They've been playing that for mm. forever in the wool pack. It was great. Were you any good at it? Oh, I could I could knock down a few pins. <laughs> Listen, I'm Australian, mate. I can do anything. Uh, at least that's where you start off feeling it. It was good fun, apart from the warm beer. Everything else was great. <laughs> that's right. And I suppose they wanted to teach you a lesson at darts too. But anyhow, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so, how did you find Australia on your return, Ken? I mean, it, it was a very different place. You know, you talk about England being confident and that. I guess Australia was evolving in the, the late sixties, also. Yeah, we came back late nineteen sixty-nine. Uh, and look, the first thing I think that strikes you when you come back is the quality of the light. I mean, it's so sharp, it's so bright, it's so clear. And after those endless grey, wet <laughs> English winters, to come back to Australia, and you know, my dad picked us up at the airport, we're on our way home, I knew that mum would have the baked dinner ready, um, you know, it was just absolutely fantastic mm. and i think any australian no matter how long you've been away to you return home you realize what an amazing country this is yeah yeah well said and only you reflect that light very very starkly in your paintings and it's obviously something that um that appeals to you and i know that a lot of people do say the same thing about australia's light being a memorable experience for them you you, you figure that very well in your paintings um yeah well, look, you know, as I say, I'm very lucky to live beside Sydney Harbour. I'm looking down at the water at the moment. The tide's coming up. Uh, it, even though it's a slightly overcast day, it's still very, you know, it's still very beautiful. And uh, even though there are not too many people on the beach, uh, people keeping their distance, mm. I'm sure we'll get through this coronavirus and return to the life we know. Yeah, I, I think so, Ken, and in many ways um, it's bringing out um, sides of us that perhaps hadn't been revealed before. We have uh, yeah. a government acting um, in ways that weren't expected and we have Australians doing good things for each other, yeah. um, which is taken over now from the news of, of the Depression, which, which started up early. But yeah. you're, you're right, it's a beautiful time in many ways. Uh, it may sound weird to say that, but yes, we will pull through. So, um, Ken, you spoke about Japan, and um, again, pull me up if I'm wrong on this, but maybe there's a special connection there. Was there a magazine in Japan that ran your paintings on its front cover for some time? There was, in fact, a magazine called Hanako. When when we first started in Sydney and I had the one little shop in the rocks, a lot of young Japanese girls would come and buy the stuff, mm. take it back to Tokyo, and so... A bloke got in touch with me one day. He said, look, we've seen all these girls coming back with carrying your bags. We'd like to talk to you about designing the front of cover of a magazine. So I said, yeah, but great. Anyway, mm -hmm. he flew out. He was a nice bloke. And uh, he wanted me to do the logo of the magazine. The magazine's called Hanukkah. It's like a girl's name. It's like Suzanne or something like that. Mm -hmm. Basically pitched to young, youngish Japanese women who were changing Japanese society at that time, wanting to be much stronger and much more independent. Anyway, we made the deal. I, I, I wrote the logo for the cover, and I, I thought he meant just like the first cover, but he meant every cover. <laughs> and uh, most magazines in Japan, you know, after about a year, they fail. Anyway, um, Hanukkah is still going, and they use my artwork on the cover every 
population wow. of a million. So it meant that I became very well known in Japan through these covers. And sometimes I'd do something specific for it, if it was like the 100th anniversary or something like that. Mm. But most of the time, I, my, my assistant would be just sending out whatever images of whatever paintings I'm working on, and they would use those. So it was, uh, it was a very unusual and quite unique situation. Unique is the perfect word to use, Ken, in that situation. And look, I know that you've held exhibitions all around the world and uh, your name is attached to, to art in Australia uh, globally, but do you have a special connection with Japan, do you think? Well, only that it was the first real different society that I went to see and I was very, and still am, very um, respectful of Japanese traditional design. Mm. I've always liked Japanese haiku poetry and I always, you know, when I was a little boy, I grew up in a little country town. A lot of the young guys had gone to war. And as a young kid, you know, when I was five or six or seven, I could think of nothing more frightening or more terrifying than a Japanese person. Because we'd have seen war pictures of, you know, Japanese guys up in the top of palm trees shooting down, sniping and doing... And a lot of terrible things happened to, you know, kids that... Or, young boys that lived in this town so I hated the Japanese mm. so it's amazing isn't it time changes and mm. you know people that were once our worst possible enemy now are very close and uh, mm. n n uh, I mean uh, I was born in 1940 mm. so I can remember the war in the sense of the house that we lived in in Belmore was always full of servicemen coming and going. My dad wasn't there because he was a bomber pilot in England. He didn't come back for five years. Mm -hmm. But my granddad, who'd been in Gallipoli, he was number nine in the 3rd Battalion. He was there and there's always, you know, soldiers and sailors and airmen coming and going from the house. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mother, you know, always playing wartime songs still bring a tear to my eye because of the memories of that kind of childhood mm. i mean i can remember when the war finished and there was i was five then there was a big march up macquarie street and my granddad was there my father had come back um for anybody of my age and i'll be 80 this year which comes as a great surprise to me <laughs> um you know your childhood is full of early wartime memories Yes, yes. And thank you for sharing that too, Ken. And obviously there is um, a, a big, um, the war left a big stamp on the memories, I guess, of kids growing up in that age too. I, John Lennon would speak of that too. And I guess the Beatles were around your age too. So yeah, very appropriate, very appropriate. Um, I think um, with with that memory, you, art evolves. And of course, we speak of memories and time um, elapsing as an important factor in um, the way that we deal with things. But art as therapy, Ken, did, did, is it something that you have to do? Look, it is. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, the first thing I do, I take this morning for an example, the first thing I did, I come into the studio, the first thing, on the, on the way down to the beach to have a swim, I've got to have a look what I did yesterday. 
And I happen to be working on a big picture at the moment, it's about three metres by two metres, which is, you know, considerable size. Mm. Um, and I've been working on it now for, you know, three or four days. But in the truth, I've been working on it for 75 years. Yes. Um, any painting or any artist yes. is the accumulation. It's the accumulation of all the time that I've spent. Mm. But, it, like, I have made... Most of my pictures are optimistic pictures, no question about it. Mm. But uh, I was asked to do a whole series of pictures about the Japanese attack on Sydney Harbour 1942. Mm. Uh, which was very well received from, from the critics, and it's the first time I'd done paintings, I suppose, about drowning and death and and what Sydney Harbour was like uh, on those days. Mm. And then I always make a painting on Anzac Day, too, in respect to all of those men and women who gave their lives so that we Australians can have the lifestyle that we enjoy now. Yes, that's very well said, Ken, and uh, I think... Uh the essence of The Last Post as a magazine is not so much to um, reflect on war, but uh, as a thank you to being able to live in a democratic um, uh, lifestyle that um, encourages those uh, to succeed, uh, like yourself. So very, very well said. And, um, yeah, the Japanese and, of course, uh, Sydney Harbour in those days was a different place altogether, at least during the war. I know that there was a lot of concern from Australians, my father told me, but... And my grandfather also fought at Gallipoli, so there's a connection there too, which is amazing. Um, look, we spoke about art as therapy and the, the feeling of the need to do that and artistic expression being essential to a good outcome for mental health. What, I guess another thing with you is, did you have an exhibition, I guess, about colour, the joy of colour, was it? That... Well, my, all of my exhibitions, I suppose, are about colour. Um, mm -hmm. There's a travelling exhibition of mine at the moment, which is travelling to various regional galleries in Queensland and New South Wales, and yes, it's certainly about colour. But look, colour's just like notes on the mute, on, on a piano. It's, a, you know, yes. one colour, but it's what colour you put beside it and the order in which you put them. Like, I'm looking at this big painting I'm working at at the moment, and it's going all right, but I can see areas, I can see big areas that I need to soften the colour a little bit, which is like softening the note in music. Yes. If you mm -hmm. work with a lot of colours, like having a big orchestra, mm -hmm. you can't have everybody playing at full pelt all the time. Mm -hmm. it, 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 the words of like harmony and composition and those words that are relevant to music is just as relevant to painting. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so true. And, um, well, a, a good painting does sing. Yeah, that's right. And also, like a good, good painting, like a good song, it'll, you know, last for a long time and hopefully continue to give you pleasure over time. I think it's... I'm sure your readers, uh, you know, they'll all have something on the wall, some things they still look at and get pleasure out of, some things they just glance at and they don't, you know, doesn't mean anything anymore. So I think it's important that you have paintings that can give you pleasure over time. Yes, yes, indeed. And I think it was... Um... I think it was Vincent that said, Van Gogh that said um, that Shakespeare, what did he say, Shakespeare, I, I paint with colours, Shakespeare painted with words. Um, yeah, that's right, they are words. They, yeah. they, they're, 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 
you know, it doesn't matter what an artist says, it's what he does. And it's always half a conversation. You know, my painting is half the conversation. The other half is filled with you or your, your or anybody who comes to look at it. Mm, mm, That's mm, the other mm. part of the conversation. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, it, because then it becomes part of your life. And that's the beautiful, far-reaching effects of good art, um, whether right. written word, painting, or um, right. or music. And look, um, Ken, is it true you were once asked by Paul Keating to design an Australian flag? You submitted some, didn't you? Yeah, look, I've thought about it. I think that I don't know whether now. I used to think it'll be in my lifetime. Now I'm not so sure. Um, it's such an emotive thing, mm. um, and it has to be something that all Australians respond to, and. It needs to be very simple. Flags need to be, you know, as, you need to be able to reproduce it the size of a fingernail. Mm. A lot of times some people have come up with ideas for flags, but they're too complicated. Mm -hmm. And they look as though they need to have a story with them. Or there's something that's... A flag's not an illustration of a country. I mean, the French flag's not an illustration of France. Mm -hmm. Um and the really strong flags in the world, the Union Jack, uh, the French flag, uh, the Japanese flag, the Greek flags, are essentially very simple. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be something we, I think, it's not going to be something we haven't thought of. You know, it's not going to be the blue ringed octopus or something <laughs> or a pie. Yes. Uh, I think it's either going to be the Southern Cross or a kangaroo uh, or the Federation Star. Yep. Within those three areas, and look, Australians have already decided that gold or yellow is our national colour. You don't need a referendum to know that. Mm -hmm. Any sporting event that you go to, Australians will always be wearing that colour. Mm. So I think it's very, imp it's a very important thing. Uh, I, you need political will to make it happen. Uh, I think the country's got other things on its mind at the moment. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And um, as a reflection of the Australian spirit, um, thanks for giving us your feelings on the flag because, of course, I'd never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. And it needs to be not too busy, but um, but there it is. And we do hope for a change of flags. Um, as, a, as I guess because we spoke about time, time has moved on. And I think personally that um, we, we do need a, a new flag. Yeah, there needs something that symbolises Australia as it is now. Look, the Aboriginal flag, for instance, is a terrific design. It's mm. a really strong, powerful design. Mm. But I don't think the bulk of Australians would respond to it and the Aboriginals themselves would say, look, bugger me, you've stole the country now, you've stolen our flag. Mm. Uh, it's a sure. great design, though. But uh, I, I think that it's going to be... I think in the end it'll probably be a version of the kangaroo as simple as you can possibly make it. Mm, Everywhere mm. in the world people know that that's Australia. Mm, mm, indeed, and we have them a few of them around our office here in Long Beach, that's for sure. Um, beautiful animals. Um, so what are you painting at the moment? Are you allowed to tell us? Oh, yeah, sure. There's never any secret when I'm painting. <laughs> uh, I'm painting a big reef picture. I, we were up in Heron Island a few weeks ago I uh, did some diving on the Barrier Reef, and look, it's in pretty good shape up there. I know there's parts of the reef that it's not. 
So I'm making a big painting, yet another big painting about not what it looks like underwater, but what it feels like underwater. Mm -hmm. I don't make, you know, tight illustrative pictures that, uh, you know, David Attenborough could look at and say, well, that's that or that's that. Um, I want to paint paintings of what it feels like to be underwater. Mm -hmm. Well... We look forward to seeing that very, very much. What's the time frame on that, uh, Ken? Uh, well, this one, I don't know, mate. It's, uh, it, we're, in, we're in the struggling part at the moment. <laughs> but in my, well, in my gallery, there are about six new big reef paintings that have gone there, gone through. The, like when I finish a picture, it stays here in the house for a while so I can look at it. Mm. Then it goes to be photographed and then it goes to the gallery. So I know that if people are interested in looking up the, the gallery website, they'll see some new reef pictures there, which mm. again, it's, you know, the, you could say there's strong political statements uh, about, uh, you know, if you think they're beautiful, then you realise how important it is we look after the reef. Mm, mm. It's a statement in itself. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm not not out there beating your drums or you know screaming at people, but uh, hopefully, it's again it brings back full circle to things that you were talking about earlier, and that is the great joy that we have of the, being lucky enough to live in Australia. Mm, mm. Indeed, Ken, and I must get to the uh, the gallery when uh, all the dust is settled. I, yeah. so I will, Ken. And look, finally. Um, is is painting your meditation? Yeah, I certainly lose myself within it. I mean, you know, my wife could say to me, well, you know, you, you need to be helping with the laundry or something. Mm. And I could say, well, look, I'm sorry, I have to go to the studio and work. Whereas it's not really work. I mean, it, <laughs> no. it, it's, it's what I do. Mm, mm, mm. Brilliantly said, and uh, embracing something that you love so dearly is not work, uh, but it uh, produces uh, a life for you. Yeah, well, you know, whether you're a writer or you, if you like to mow lawns, as long as you're doing something that you get some pleasure out of. Mm, very well said. Thanks very much for being part of the interview in the magazine, Ken. No, not to worry. I enjoyed it. Good questions. I look forward to seeing the piece.